Define real in context, please. This unit is programmed to provide sources of acceptable nutritional value. Your request does not fall within current guidelines. Please indicate whether you wish to override the specified program. You know it's a slippery slope, little one. Now read those letters I sent you and say hello to Jean-Luc. Welcome to Re-Engage, everyone. <laughs> On this here podcast, we watch every episode of the sci-fi series Star Trek The Next Generation and re-engage with that show from the perspective of adult storytellers instead of those young people we used to be way back in the day when it first aired. We have now gone through season one and season two. We're now in season three, and we are excited to get into this episode. This is episode eight, The Price. It is a good one, but I am excited. I'm Greg Tito, and I'm here with three of my wonderful friends. Hi, Jimmy G. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Mr. Tito. Thank you. Uh, excited to talk about the Bryce and those dreamy blue eyes. Oh, gorgeous. They're just gorgeous. Kate Yeager, how are you? Oh, I'm good, Greg. I have to tell you, I'm excited to talk about this episode because I had a very different reaction to it now than I did then. <laughs> so... We are all nodding wide-eyed. <laughs> So I'm excited to talk about it. It goes some wonky directions. Eric Ratton, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing okay. I'm loving so far the fact that we are all talking about how excited we are. And I look around at these four faces and see tired, tired <laughs> humans. <laughs> it's, it's like, like, I'm very excited to get in here and talk about Matt McCoy and how pretty he still is. And you're all absolutely correct. And I feel it so hard. Uh, let's get to it. We yeah. are all like Troy at the beginning of this episode, right? We are just <laughs> going through it. Uh, so, yes, this episode first aired on November 13th, 1989. This is episode eight, The Price. As I said, we're in star date 43385.6. But in November 1989, this is when the Berlin Wall comes down. Ooh. We've been alluding to it for the last couple of episodes, how the uh, foreign minister was uh, removed. There's been some back and forth between people in uh, Hungary uh, having their picnic. Those were basically made like precursors to this. And looking into how it actually happened on November 9th, it was all by accident, which was really strange. There was a press conference. They had a law about like how we're going to get some immigration happening. Uh, and everyone was like, this law doesn't make any sense. It's stupid. It's more confusing than it was. Like, this doesn't open up anything. And then there was a press conference scheduled, and the prime minister hands a note to the guy who is going to be the communications director and hasn't read the note, doesn't know what's in it, but it basically says like, oh, by the way, uh, you know, you can go back and forth, but you still have to get your identity checked in these uh, times. He goes to the entire press conference, and one, one of the reporters asks him a question. And he basically just reads the note again and says, oh, yeah, OK, no, I guess you can just go back and forth between East Berlin and West Berlin. You're good. And this gets broadcast uh, all over uh, East Germany. It gets picked up by the news programs at eight o'clock in West Germany. And as I've been saying, there's all these mass protests going on. So people have wanted this to happen. And as soon as that goes that night, people go to the Berlin Wall and try to get across from East Berlin into West Berlin. The guards don't know any of uh, this is going to happen. They're like, what? The, what's good? What? They're calling their superiors. Nobody says, like, 
don't let anybody through or shoot them if you have to. Nobody wants to give that order. And so the guards are just overwhelmed and are just like, okay, it's open, go through. And then the next day, the next morning, all of a sudden, that's when the pickaxes and people just start to be like, we can do whatever we want here. Let's just rip down this wall. There's a couple more breaches. And it just becomes like this free, like almost spontaneous event of this wall, wall coming down. The next week, November 16th, Crosby, Stills, and Nash is there. They're performing in front of the wall. Their song, Chipping Away, which seems very much on the nose. Um <laughs> and then uh, b- before you know it, uh, the next year, I think six months in front of it, uh, uh, Roger Waters performs the wall right in front of the Berlin Wall as it's still being torn down. It doesn't get actually all the way demolished until June of 1990. Uh, but it all happens uh, within three episodes, three days of when this episode airs. Wow. Momentous events. Turn those great metaphor songs into literal bullshit. <laughs> Love it. Top that with your song of the week. Right? Right. Uh, <laughs> take my drug song. Make it about an actual wall. I love it. I dare you. <laughs> right. The wall isn't really about the Berlin Wall, really. Yeah, it wasn't everything about the Berlin Wall if you wanted it to be in 1989. <laughs> the Scorpions were there uh, performing with Roger Rodgers. Excuse me, the- it is just Scorpions. Thank you very much. <laughs> Not the Scorpions. <laughs> Correct. Like eels, it is just eels. Just a scorpion. No, there's definitely a plural. It's not. It's plurality, scorpions. The difference between alien and aliens. There's, there's a band called Scorpion that is still pissed at the other band for breaking oh, early motherfuckers uh, so that was what was happening in the world kate what was <laughs> happening as far as the music and the times the music and the times uh i lied to you last week uh like a like a dirty dirty liar and i said oh, that look who's ooh. talking was no longer going to be on our plate uh oh, no, we had this still... one more one more one more week heckling forever people could not get enough of this talking baby movie it was uh, a hit. It was a legitimate huge hit. I legitimately remember seeing it in the theater. I do yeah. because I remember being mortified at that opening. Uh, we've already talked about it, but the sperm scene because I was with my parents and it was mortifying. From the genius mind of Amy Heckerling, who we will discuss more when we get to the guest star list. Ah, Bruce nice. Willis does a fantastic performance uh, <laughs> of his life, I think, um, as as the voice his of the Hamlet. He was it's, it's Hamlet, it's I think, Hamlet. Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely Kirstie Alley's. I don't, she's never done anything better than this. <laughs> uh, on the music front, we had uh, When I See You Smile by the band. Oh, Eric wants to say Bad English? Bad English, you got mm, it. Nice. Exactly. On television, the Comedy Channel debuted, which would uh, very quickly become Comedy Central. Whoa. Oh, yeah. That early. Yeah. Uh, yeah. About two years later, it became Comedy Central. But uh, but yeah. So That's huge. That was one of those channels that uh, nobody you knew had. I remember that for like Comedy Central, especially. Like It was like, I gotta get Comedy Central. And then on Broadway, A Few Good Men opened. Uh, at the Music Box Theater uh, for 497 performances. And uh, Gypsy opened at the St. James Theater for 477 performances. And that's my neck of the woods. Sounds awesome. <laughs> nice. I just turned into Al Roker there for, for a second. <laughs> <laughs> 
We'll be having some clouds <laughs> storm front coming through. Jimmy, what was going on in the behind the scenes on this episode, The Price? Yeah, there's a couple of things. Uh, two of them I'll get to if we stumble upon them during the episode relating to Troy uh, and her empathic abilities and our Ferengi friends. Mm -hmm. But uh, Troy's office we see, uh, or her quarters we see in this episode, it was actually redressed from an earlier episode where she was in her office. Her office was on deck eight, room 3472, and her quarters is on deck nine. It's 0910. So if you want to pay Troy a visit, those are her locations on the Enterprise. Wow. Uh, and then we hear, we, we know where Raoul is from, uh, the European Alliance, and this is uh, likely an illusion or a successor, I should say, to the European uh Hegemony? Hegemony? How do I say that, Eric? Hegemony? Hege the way they did in this was hegemony. Hegemony. Hegemony is right. Hegemony. I even have it spelled out here and couldn't get it right. Uh, that they mentioned in Up the Long Ladder. So some pretty deep geek stuff there. Some world building. Yeah, we'll stumble upon the other two during the episode. He was from Brussels, wasn't he? Isn't that what it, Brussels yeah. is correct, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were thinking of Jean-Claude Van Damme. He is also from Brussels. It's true. As I understand it. Uh, Eric, uh, sorry, Eric, was this uh, was Jean-Claude Van Damme in this? He was not. Oh. He is he is just from Brussels, as as those of us who follow the muscles, as he is known, uh, will remember. Uh, is that my segue into the guest stars? That was my that was my episode? odd, awkward segue. No, that yeah. was so smooth. It is a fantastic segue, my friend. <laughs> All right, we have wonderful guest stars in this. We started out the episode with two, count of two, characters played by one Majel Barrett, uh, who we always have to bring up very quickly. The, the whole thing starts with her voice on the, on the as the Enterprise voice, discussing her own character of Luoxana Troy and saying basically, oh, Deanna, I have a letter from myself for you. And it's quite lovely. So we've been into it many, many times. Major Barrett is Star Trek royalty and fantastic. We have too many people to talk about to spend much time on her. So unfortunately, with respect, we move on to Castulo Guerrera, uh, <clears throat> Guerra as Seth Mendoza. Prolific is the word. The man has hundreds, hundreds of gigs throughout his. Most recently on Station 19, he is still going. If you are Jane the Virgin fans, as I know you all are, he is Rogelio de la Vega's father, Grandpa de la Vega. He is a legend, one of the presidents on Madam Secretary, great role in Purge Anarchy. Now, let me blow your minds. He's the snitch that causes all that trouble in The Usual Suspects. Oh. He is the man that they are breaking into the tanker to uh, get, and they end up killing everybody, and then Kaiser Sose can come on and kill him. He is the guy. Nice. Incredibly important in that. So I, he has so much more. I encourage you to go look at his stuff. But we have to move on to Lelor, portrayed by incredible, absolute fucking royalty, Kevin Peter Hall, mm. who uh, was, I'm going to start with, he was a nightclub performer throughout his entire college and professional career as an actor, and I want footage of it somewhere. <laughs> he was 6'10", played high school and college basketball, but mostly he wanted to concentrate on his major, which was theater arts. 
his first credit in the film industry is in The Prophecy, which, if you don't know it, is this bonkers horror movie oh. directed by John Frankenheimer. Yes, he yeah. is the bear. He is oh. uncredited as the bear in The Prophecy. Right after this, it's super problematic and horrifying as a movie, by the yeah, way. Yeah, but yeah. It is recommended. Um, <laughs> Mr. Hall was just getting started, though, because he was then the alien in Without Warning, which is a new watch for me this year, if you haven't seen it. If we go with The Prophecy as being like a four on the bonker scale, then we're going up to like a nine with Without Warning. This stars Jack Palance and Martin Landau. Uh, against an alien that shoots flying toothy starfish frisbees at you. And I could not recommend it more. Go check out Without Warning if you can track it down. I found it on Hoopla, I believe. It also might be on YouTube. Like, it's one of those out-of-print classics. Uh, recommended. Then, he was the main antagonist demon in Mazes and Monsters. Talk about genre wow. fucking royalty. That was a big part of the D&D storyline. Uh, right? It all went down with Tom Hanks playing that game. That's it. You gotta check it out for Kevin Peter Hall. Moving on from there, stuff like One Dark Night, Monster in the Closet, and The Wildlife. All fantastic cult shit in the 80s. In 1987 alone, he was the title characters in Harry and the Hendersons. He was Harry, not the Hendersons. And I shit you not, The Predator. No. He did The Predator and Predator 2. Yep. He closed it out with his career, that is, with the most underseen independent action film of my lifetime, in my opinion, Highway to Hell. Do you guys know this one? Mm-mm. No. Holy shit, this one. This one has both... Uh, Jerry Stiller and Ann Mira and Ben Stiller in weird ass fucking roles. It's a post-apocalyptic uh, Fantasia Patrick Bergen as like this demon in a muscle car going through the desert. Um, you should watch it. You should all watch it enough times to memorize it. I promise you it will change your life. <laughs> Unfortunately, Kevin Peter Hall left us. Uh, he passed away due to AIDS in 1991, a very young man. Uh, but then we get to talk about uh, Scott Thompson as Damon Goss, one of my favorite performances in Ferengi history. He's a genius in this. He and his cousin Daryl and his other cousin Daryl, <laughs> uh, brother Daryl, are fantastic in this as the, the trio of chair-seeking uh, Ferengi. You might remember him, Jimmy, especially, though all of you, in the Police Academy movies where he is... Copeland, who's one of the guys who gets his head shaved at the beginning before they all figure out that they don't have to shave their heads. <laughs> and he's one of these fucking moron foils to Mahoney throughout the entire series. That's probably his biggest role. But I alluded to it earlier. He is a close collaborator with Amy Heckerling mm. and is in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Johnny Dangerously, Loser, Vamps. He They work he does, he's in basically everything she does, and he is a lucky skunk for that. He's a 90s fun like Twister. He's one of the storm uh, catchers along with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm. Uh, and 80s great genre stuff like Ghoulies, if you remember that Ghoulies. one. One of the great fucking B-movie horror comedies. Frightmare, Parasite, Greatest American Hero, Fantasy Island. He made a screen debut in Smokey and the Bandit. And in this particular performance, I love him so much. One of his collaborators in this is Dan Shore as Dr. Arador. He's still going strong with recent work on Bull and Crown Heights. But he has also a long list of genre stuff like Jessica Jones, The X-Files, 
he was he comes back as Eridor, which we're going to talk about in this uh, yeah. in Voyager. These uh, lovely Ferengi that get lost in the Delta Quadrant are not necessarily lost forever. I, I now I'm going to go back to some shit here. Uh, he is in Ghoulies Go to College. We just talked about how Scott Thompson was in the first Ghoulies. The fourth Ghoulies is Ghoulies Go to College, and he is in this Beauty and the Beast, that series we all love, X-Files, and now hear this, if you will. This man was Billy the Kid in Bill and Ted's (gasps) Excellent Adventure. No. Yes. This man was in Strange Invaders, which I also love, and in Tron, he played Ram. Oh. Bow down before all the noble, noble ram that we all mourn as loss. <laughs> um, so that is all basically a build up to Elizabeth Hoffman, who is uh, Premier Bevani in this. She turned 95 last week. She's still around. But after a hugely successful couple of decades in the 80s and 90s, she took a step back and said, fuck it. I'm going to do the occasional interview and uh, just live off uh, whatever the fuck I made uh, during this fantastic career that ended. She just walked away after Dante's Peak, one of the great disaster, bonkers, crazy-ass, good-time movies. Please show a little respect to Dante's Peak. Right before that, she was Beatrice, the mother, in 137 episodes of a little show called Sisters. She was very active in the 80s as well, never looked back after retirement, and good for her. Matt McCoy could barely be called a guest star. This one felt like they were going to bring him back as some sort of recurring something. Uh, A movie star from the 80s. He took over as the Mahoney-type character as Lassard's nephew in the Police Academy movies. We get right back to those. Mm. Uh, I decided to play a game with this one and try to remember kind of everything I remembered off the top of my head from Matt McCoy. And it boiled down to the Police Academy movies, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, Lloyd Braun from Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. And that was it. But I got to tell you, those were the three things that were in his uh, early Wikipedia article. And then it went down to list the other things. The only other thing I came up with beforehand was a movie that I couldn't really even find a title of. It was a Western he did with Kelly LeBrock that they showed kind of on a loop on HBO one summer. Um, <laughs> he had a great career with Curtis Hansen. He did both The Hand That Rocks the Cradle and LA Confidential with him. And nobody ever fucking talks about Deep Star Six. So God damn it, Matt McCoy, you genius. Welcome to the Federation. Wow. That was impressive. I love that I still, half of those credits, I'm like, I, I don't know what you're talking about, but I believe it. And then you the other half, I'm like, Police good. Academy, when he got taken over the right? paper, I was like, oh, right. When He was in the last two, right? Five yeah. and six, I think. Yes, five and six. When, Assignment Miami Beach and like City and Chaos. When it was, was, when it was enough for Steve Gutenberg, you know, that's got to be <laughs> the prime of this. I got to tell you, I, I kind of, I have some pretty embarrassingly vivid memories of Assignment Miami Beach. I remember <laughs> liking that movie as like a 17-year-old or whatever when that shit That's what out. they were good at when you were 17 yeah. and wanted to see an R-rated comedy. 17-year-old boy from Kansas is going to like some Police Academy movies. I think Lloyd Braun sticks out for me as like the big McCoy yeah. part. Like it, it, it it's paramount. Mm. It's the serenity now, right? Mm. Is Lloyd Braun... Yes. <laughs> I have I, I want to go back and watch some more Seinfeld because it's on it's on one of these things now and I'm like, oh yeah, it's it's top of the list. 
Uh, speaking of which, the writer for this is at the top of my list. She did some amazing stuff. It's Hannah Louise Shearer. We've seen a bunch of her uh, credits already. She's a writer for the first few seasons. She did When the Bow Breaks about uh, the um, kids going over with Will Wheaton. Uh, Skin of Evil. She wrote the, the teleplay on that where, where Yar dies. Uh, and then uh, she actually ends up ending uh, her stuff as writer uh, soon after this um, and going on to other amazing stuff. Uh, the director is Robert Shearer, um, and he has directed, you know, The Measure of a Man and this one and uh, a, a Q episode coming on later. So 11 in total uh, TNG episodes, a couple of DS9 and Voyager. But he started his career as a dancer and was originally uh, working with Abbott and Costello, performing dances, going to Broadway. He was in Lend Me an Ear. Uh, and then he was in a uh, directing job doing the Saturday morning show, the Danny Cook show, and that transitioned into him just doing TV uh, for over and over. So lots of great stuff. Uh, ending this is near the end of his career. Um, all right. This episode is The Price. What happens? Troy is very, very distraught. It's a good opening. She comes in. She just wants a Sunday. She just wants a real chocolate Sunday, and I felt that. Is that so fucking hard? Is that so fucking hard? It's all she wants. Yeah, when you make your food out of poop, it's hard. <laughs> That's true. That's actually canon from Disco, <laughs> from Star Trek Disco. Where else did he get the energy? I haven't had chocolate since 1991, and I feel what she's saying every time someone tries to convince me that white chocolate is an effective substitute. Oh. I mean, I think it it's just the, the real whipped cream, the mouthfeel. She really just wanted a a Sunday. Well, and I don't know. Yeah. So so are we to believe that she has her own sort of restrictions on her uh, replicator? Or is that like ship wide that everybody is supposed to be on their best behavior? I think it's well, like. Well, I don't think it had anything to do with best behavior. It's just the, the computer can't go beyond its parameters of. Health. Making they they use a goop of something to formulate something, so they she they can't just yeah go milk a cow and make you some ice cream real quick or uh, milk chocolate. Yeah, I feel like it's the the same thing in Ten Forward in the various iterations where they also have you know one dusty bottle of the actual stuff in addition to the various synthetic right. alcohols. Mm. You just don't have the actual ice cream anywhere. I think she was going to override it though. She had the option. That's that's what I was trying to say. Oh, yeah. It says, I don't it get says that. do you want to do you want to override the protocols? And she's like, mm, and then it's like, boop, boop. oh well, that's very that's gendered true. then. Ooh, it's <laughs> true. That that feels like a lady keeping her hips. Yeah, that's what I was. Yeah. Uh, so that then when Picard calls in, it's that great moment of oh, what now? And I was I got worried for a second that her communicator had already turned on when she said that. <laughs> uh, but that he come to the to the reception impromptu reception oh put on any old thing i thought that was a terrible <laughs> terrible little bit for picard there. any old uniform yeah D didn't it seem like he was pretty canonically three or four drinks in the bag mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. like yes. that seemed like an extraordinarily unethical phone call for him to have made well and nicer <laughs> than usual right like he's like yeah. come to the bridge or come to Tim Ford. No explanation, but he's no, like, no, that's, God. 
That's Come absolutely. On. Someone was like, Come on. someone was like, where's Deanna? And they were like, oh shit, we gotta text her. <laughs> you guys, <laughs> you guys, shut up, shut up, shut yes. up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna call her right now. We miss, shut we, up, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> we missed the scene where he's like, he misses his communicator badge. He comes on, he's like, finally gets it. <laughs> oh, she does have a good exit line though. Oh. God forbid I missed the opening of a wormhole. <laughs> Which is also just, it helps us remember that there's a wormhole. <laughs> I started thinking of like an actual, like a worm's hole. And I'm like, that's pretty gross. Mm, that's, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> and now we're all thinking of it. Thanks, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm hungry. Yes. Delicious. So she goes to the party, introduces all of the players, including one Ral. The original Mr. McDreamy. Yes. The moment she made eye contact with him, uh, my husband said, Deanna's got an unstable wormhole, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They might as well have had like the ooga. Ooga, <laughs> right? Like, because it sort of almost intimated to me like that they maybe they knew each other yes, or like that there was some sort of, you know, yeah. like unspoken. Maybe it was one of Pulaski's exes, you know, coming on board. <laughs> yeah, I just want to interject real quick to ask you guys. I didn't know until tonight when I was looking up some stuff about this episode that all Betazoids are born male. All of them. What? And they are changed, some of them, to female. This is from Memory Alpha. Had you guys ever heard of that? Like surgically? I, I didn't dive that much more into it. That just that there's some process they go through to uh, match them. They with... were just touching the third rail all the way through. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. fascinating. It's cr- and they, Orville made, had a whole episode about that where yeah. they. They played off of that. I didn't know yeah, that it had anything to do with, with that. But Well, that attraction is definitely evident. Uh, of course, in hindsight, we realized it was their, their Betazoidness knowing each other, I guess. I mean, because she could feel what she was feeling. And then they he knew. And immediately, he's like, the girl that he walked in with, he's like, you know, GTFO. Uh, here, here's, here's a plane ticket. Now, was that just because she picked up on, you know, the whole Betazoid thing? Like, she didn't know. But, like, just, like, there was something... She could sense more in him than anybody else, and that was the big attraction. Or is this a thing with Betazoids? We're like, we can't, we we can't be around each other because it is off the hook. I think it's a. I think it was implied that it has something to do with their mutual ability around feelings, and that's part of why I thought the whole thing was so fucking creepy because he knew and she didn't. Yes, and mm. that is mm. creepy as shit. I thought it was creepy too, but. Not for that reason. Now that just makes it doubly so. Which is, I yeah. mean, we'll get to that point, but yeah, I think yeah. that knowledge is what rips their whole relationship apart. Like, oh yeah, no, for sure. But, we, we, and it's awesome yeah. when she finds out. All right, so, uh, but at, right now she's very, she's very enticed. She's into him. But then we get the whole setup here that there's a wormhole. <laughs> it's for sale by a, a race called the Barzans. They don't got anything on this planet. They don't even have a manned ship, uh, you know, space flight yet. But they got this wormhole and they're accepting all bids. Uh, and we'll see what happens. He's representing the Chrysalians. The Federation has their guy there. There's another, uh, um, the, uh, I'm blanking on the name of the Laor and the Caldonians. Laor. 
Yeah, that was uh, the tall guy. I thought it was pretty cool when they introduced her because she has the little things by her mouth, the two little discs. They don't say what they're for, but she does mention, um, thank you for hosting here because our planet is in hospitals to most life forms. And that's part of the reason why they they depend on everybody else. Like somehow their race has made it on the planet, but very few others can even go down there. And obviously they don't have natural resources. So it was pretty cool to have this sci-fi thing of the wormhole is our resource. Like we finally found a well that we can draw from. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they didn't have to explain the little things. Although in my head I was singing about it being a podcast and we could be all podcasty. That would have been my cold open, by the way. Uh, I thought it was more like a a horse bridle and we were into a little bit of pony play. (laughs) Just to keep with the Betazoid sex. Whatever curls your toes, according to Dr. (laughs) Gushers. I can't believe that line happened. (laughs) Just amazing. Uh, So that's this whole situation, but then after the credits roll, we get into the conference room area, and that's when the they realize just uh, how valuable this is because the Ferengi show up, mm, and they're like, "Wait a second, God, we want to be involved. How dare you keep us out of here?" And we're gonna need some chairs. <laughs> oh, the who's it on first of chairs? Very summer stocky funny. <laughs> it was genius. I want more of it constantly when done that well. I swear to God, Dan, or what's his fucking name? Scott Thompson. I, I'm, I'm a lifelong fan, man. I'm going to keep enjoying it. It's so good. It's so good. Because the first line is funny. It's like, oh, we're going to need some chairs. And it's underplayed mm-hmm. a little bit very well. And then it just escalates. It's, right. it's, it's very, very good. And I love that Picard is the consummate host. And it's like, no, you take my chair. Oh, yeah. I had this moment because he says that and then he leaves and he gets this little <laughs> smile on his face or this little look. And I was like, he just farted. Like, he just. <laughs> <laughs> so does he know what I've put in his chair? <laughs> it was like bloopers and practical jokes uh, situation. <laughs> Which Lovely. does come up in this episode, too. All right. Uh, so that's the whole sitch. Goss is trying to do this with gold. He throws it all out there, and he's, like, going to, you know, just take over the whole Whatever thing. they offer, the gold is on top. Exactly. I will go above and beyond. And that's negotiating right there, man. Puts his feet up on the desk and basically says, like, here, take it. <laughs> yeah. Then uh, there's a visit to Troy, which is not weird or creepy at all. Uh, except where it is in every way. She's full on googling him to start with. Right. Like let's let's <laughs> let's be clear. Which which actually like when you think about it, is a little like it. They got it right, right? Because what's the first thing you would do? You would use the really powerful computer to be like, who the right. fuck is this person? That's true. I love yeah. it. Good point. That's the only thing I love about this. Scene. Everything else is <laughs> creepy. Y'all, this yeah. entire episode is one big red flag. Like it is so upsetting. And I remember this episode and I remember being like, how romantic. And now like I wanted to vomit so many times. It was so like speaking of curling of the toes, but in the opposite direction, I don't know how that works. (laughs) They're breaking (laughs) up. I, yeah, I wrote down if Reason Magazine were a walking red flag of a Tinder profile, it would be <laughs> Like, if Shkreli 
were charming. <laughs> you know, he's it's just so gross. Oh. It's that moment with the hair too. It's so yeah. awkward and it's wrong. And she tries to stop him too. It's not like yeah. No, she's right? all okay with it. Well, they still leave it a little bit like I still was like, well, oh, they do know each other, right? Like that's yeah. there's no way you touch a stranger that way. Right. And then like the more it became apparent, like oh no, no no, yeah. there's a what's your name coming up any moment yeah. now. This is I awkward. mean the whole time I thought it was uh, the subplot was oh we knew each other from Betazoid school or something. <laughs> and I gotta tell you, I was creeped out by it last night, but I'm. Right now, I'm even more creeped out after what Eric said about the, the whole I got I, I yeah. feel what you're feeling, and yeah. so he knew that, and he was like, "Well, I know you're into me, so I'm just gonna lean into it, and I can do stuff that I normally wouldn't do." And that is that. I mean, that's rape, right? I mean that that is, it is really unsettling. They they lean into that with a lot of characters in in big two comic books, right? Like in Marvel, especially, there are a lot of characters whose power is a form of attraction, right? Wolverine's son mm-hmm. is like that. Um, Eros, uh, Thanos's brother, doesn't he go to like get tried? Like Eros is like put on trial for that. Yeah, but initially he was written as like this charming rogue, and then in the eighties as uh, scholarship yeah. uh, got to the mass media and people started to say, hey, Marvel, this shit is bullshit. They listened a bit and turned him into a fucking predator. Uh, whether he admitted it or not, the, the hero community uh, shunned him and prosecuted him for that kind of stuff. So that was right. But like this, <laughs> this that's what it made me, it made me think of the whole time. Like the knowing... <laughs> that she's attracted to him and then twisting that a little bit before she knows he's Betazoid. Yeah. Right. And the writers thought that it was, uh, I I don't know what they were thinking in their head. It came across as if they thought this is what people wanted to see. Like this was charming or this is a guy, you know, taking a chance and stepping up. Like they did not portray that part of him as like, that's what's bad about you. Because uh, she doesn't even bring it up later. Like when she brings up the other stuff, like, I mean, that was a line yeah. cro- <laughs> crossed. And the more the more I think on what you said, the more I'm like, wow, this is this is almost like uh, a code of honor level of you should have known better. <laughs> and this is this is wrong. <laughs> I don't know. Like I, I, I watch it and Matt McCoy is such a good actor and. Marina Sirtis is such a good actor. Part of me thinks that their clear discomfort <laughs> in some of these scenes is conscious. Like Matt McCoy is one of the more charming people on screen. When he gives a charming smile, it usually looks sincere. And this guy has a bit of a villainous feeling to his charming smile even before that to me. So I, I don't know what they were trying to do. Right. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, but I think I'm on your side, Jimmy. It just, it's, it's awful. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> and we shall not talk about it for the rest of the, oh shit, we're going to be talking about this this whole time. All right. Well, he leaves uh, dinner at eight and she's very flustered. Next bit, they are in uh, Picard's ready room talking with the uh, Federation delegate, trying to figure out exactly what this wormhole is. The ratings, uh, sorry, the uh, readings say that it is a 
very stable wormhole that goes to the ga gamma quadrant. It's very, very far away, hundreds of years at warp nine to get there. But this is also where we get some great Riker uh, lines as he's trying to uh, show his, you know, sense of negotiation here with the uh, Federation Mendoza. Yeah, poker will do everything for you. <laughs> oh, yeah, the poker. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yes, that's the poker scene. I mean, Daniel Negreanu probably could be president if he wanted to, right? Just because he's really good at bluffing. <laughs> Very popular poker player, by the way. Very famous. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah, mumble, mumble, I, mumble. Yes. This mumble. is this is honestly one of my very favorite Riker episodes of all time. Hmm. It's it's kind of fun, uh, and it it probably starts with this scene in the poker stick. Yeah, he does that bluff line in the scene, which I I like, where he just says, "What poker? Is that some sort of game?" Yeah, that's fun. Uh, yeah. And it <laughs> impresses Mendoza enough, uh, but then they don't know if it's a what the, what the wormhole is worth, and we're gonna do some more tests. Of course, uh, Jordy and Data are going to go off together. Um, some great, really, one-liners here by Brent Spiner. The one in here about the proverbial lemon. Yeah. We'll get to that later. <laughs> it's a good writer note, too, right? I mean, the whole thing with Riker is only to set up that he's going to be the negotiator later. So, I mean, that's the whole purpose. And I think it was probably very conscious from the writers. Like, we need to give some credence to it later so that mm -hmm. uh, when he has to step into it there, you don't really question it because the head negotiators already recognized him as being someone who would be really good at, at this particular job. I'd like to point out that we once again have a reference to the minute they got there, someone sent Jordy to the front observation lounge so he could look out a window at the wormhole. The whole time. <laughs> he said he's, he's had continuous visual contact so that means it's not even, he can't do it from the bridge. He has to go to an actual window to stare out at this wormhole again. But they always do when they get a place where they need for you. The cameras only work for people, Eric, when they're talking to people on well, their bridge. These cameras are not picking up the same kind of shit his visor does, or they just use the cameras. Right. Does that mean he's like the lookout at the top of the mast of the ship? Like yes. he's the guy who's always like. I want them to give him yeah a little bubble at the top. <laughs> he's that he's king like, of the world. Eric, are you saying they could take his visor off of his head and like just plug it into one of the Enterprise cameras, and then maybe they would have? If they're not interested in his real time insight. <laughs> Well, he's doing a play-by-play -play the whole time. Well, he can't see it if they've taken it off and plugged it into the computer. <laughs> this is where we got... The next thing, though, is, is is possibly my favorite, like, 30 seconds of Star Trek ever. It's when the three Ferengi are taking oh the uh, blood from the guy, putting it on his hand, and then they have this villainous laugh to each other. I love that the take that they chose probably was a little bit like, do a wacky one, and they used it anyway. <laughs> Because the dye they put on the guy's hand shakes and you can kind of see it's dripping off of his hand uh, onto his forearm. And they didn't care because it was just such, such so good. I literally thought in my head as the scene happens, like if I was hosting tonight, I'd be on the phone with Eric. We're doing an improv where we're both playing fop Ferengis talking about <laughs> dye in her hand because the doctor especially, he had his hands up like almost like a King Tut with his fingers folded over. And it was straight out of FOP 101 summer stock where like you're walking around on the tips of your, or the balls of your feet and your hands planted. Like it was so foppish. Uh, and I hated it. <laughs> Jimmy, different yes. people have different physicalities. And if that's reflected in the actors that they choose, all the better. <laughs> 
I, I think know. it was directed because it's the same foppishness we saw the first yeah. time the Ferengi were introduced and they danced around. This makes me happy because this is Jimmy <laughs> ascribing bad acting to the director and me ascribing it to the actor. <laughs> wow. never oh, the day. What bizarre world have we entered? <laughs> uh, so at 8 o'clock on Starship Enterprise rolls around and it's time for the date. Ugh. I hate, I hate so much of it, but the fact that she comes out all like, my hair is down now the way you like it. Like that to me was almost like, and and I will say from a storytelling point of view, kudos to them that they sort of bookend that in their final interaction at the very, very end, her hair goes back up. Like, so, like, the moment he takes it down, it stays down until after the confrontation at the end, and then it goes back up. So, good job with that. Oh, that was um, interesting. I didn't notice that. You know, hair and, and props and stuff. But it just, it's so, like, am I pleasing you now? That that moment of, you know, of, of the opening of the door, mm-hmm. just the male gaze. Yeah, and that's kind of, that's part of what makes me think they did it on purpose. I mean, to the extent that we're cringing now, we might have been cringing then, because his first line is also, that's better. Like, it is, it is cringy. And I know we can't go back to how we were when we were 12 and see it through our modern eyes, but like, how could it not have been? Not that I'm defending his behavior or that line, but I think what the writers were trying to show was her getting out of her counselor Troy shell that he was trying no, to be I like, get it. be the real woman you are, not necessarily the one that I find attractive, but there, that's where the line, I think, is not, you know, good enough to kind of hold up that interpretation in our now times <laughs> oh it, it is if you consider him the villain which i do <laughs> well i think he does at no. the end the scene was supposed to be and was billed yeah. as uh, a very racy scene um and it was supposed to be the first bedroom scene that's how it's billed actually uh, according to the Nemesic files, that is the first oh, wow. bedroom scene in Star Trek. I disagree with that because we had Riker sleeping with the, uh, remember the the women are in charge planet? Like they're oh. in her bedroom at the end of her bed. Uh, and we know where it's going with uh, no no. And Riker doubt. had so that half shirt thing where you can yeah, see his hair. That's, a, that's yeah. a bedroom scene. Not to mention that. Um, you know how to wash a woman, don't you? Start with the top of her head and then right, you go down right, to the toes. Right. <laughs> Yes, and the fully functional was right outside. Was right in in the foyer of the bedroom as well. So not the first, um, but I guess directly alluding to after sex. Well, she does go like I mean I guess what they're saying is that the next scene after this, uh, which we'll get to, because it's in the nineties. In the nineties, y'all, y'all, we're gonna get there, but yeah. That scene, y'all. So they drink some champagne, and they end up kissing, and then lifting her up and taking her to the bed, one assumes, uh, which, again, we'll get there. But before we do, uh-oh, Mendoza's sick. Oh, no. He gets to uh, uh, sick bay though. <laughs> no follow-through at all. No, but a very good fall. It was uh, a pretty good fall. Follow-through, but a good fall. Good, yeah. no. <laughs> well done, Mendoza. Yes. He's no spring chicken, and he and I checked. There's no padding, and there are no visible knee pads. Oh. Well done, sir. Mm. Pro. Rest of the episode, yep. he has to act laying down. It's very good. Yep. Ferengi are pissed, though. They just did. They just created a situation, but they're like, you're going to send two people into the wormhole? I don't think so. We're going to do it, too. 
peace were out. And then Picard has that great line uh, where he says to Data and LaForge, well, they better stay out of their way if they know what's good for them. My favorite line in the entire episode is in this scene, though, where they're like, you're going to send a you're going to send a probe. And he says, then send one for yourself, Goss. Riker says says that. Exactly like that. (laughs) Send one yourself, Goss. God. (laughs) You acted so messed up towards me. So petulant and like, bro. I'm telling you, it's Riker's Riker's best shit. (laughs) He lets the Ferengis get under his skin. It's true. Despite that, though, they go to the sick bay. They see the Mendoza's basically had an allergic reaction, and he's out. And Picard says, Riker, you're it. The stakes are higher than poker, but that's when the game gets interesting. And I like that this episode, it might be the first time that Picard acknowledges the poker game that the rest of the crew plays. I don't think he's, he's, not, he's never at the poker table, but he's certainly aware of it. And you can tell him that smirk that he, you know. Maybe he wants to be involved. I don't think I ever clocked he's not at the poker table. He's never there until all good things at the end when he sits down. That's like the final shot. Intriguing. Right? You don't play with your boss. You can't play with the boss. Yeah. Be news to many of the bosses I've had. (laughs) (laughs) So Jordy and Data go into their shuttle pod. It's a very small shuttle pod. And Jordy says, oh, I don't want to be stuck in this thing forever. And what does Data (laughs) say? But you get to talk to me. It's <laughs> so adorable. Such a lovable robot line. Very, uh, I was going to say it's very human. Yeah. <laughs> that level of narcissism comes from humans. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's trying to say, like, you'll be my friend. Uh, be really, one good thing about it would be us enjoying our bond. Also, I'm fully functional. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like when they went down that corridor of light, uh, like once once the shuttles are going, uh, first of all, there's just some amazing like shaking of the shuttle that's happening. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, the stagehands are like really getting in their like workout. Uh, but it also like that tunnel reminded me of going through Space Mountain, and I got excited like all of those lights and the tunnels, and it was very um, uh, an epileptic dream. <laughs> Sorry, nightmare, nightmare. That's what I meant. <laughs> it's uh, I yeah. Anything that does that kind of kaleidoscopic thing, it is just a really good effect. It always makes you feel, oh yeah, they really are traveling. It feels, it feels like two thousand and one. So there's one conference room scene where Ral is trying to be all high and mighty about the Crystallians, and you know, you see kind of the back and forth between him and Riker. Oh, he's like flapping around his big old dick all over the room just trying to be all like whoa we are pacifists and like right. i just oh i just wanted to gut punch he gets him. up and walks around what was the turning off of the, the when he turns off the screen i didn't get it like i thought he was gonna show something right and he turns it off like a mic drop I was like what was on the screen that you turned off and it was supposed to be impressive i, I didn't and it didn't matter. It just plays into what you're saying. I was like, man, he's really is throwing around his dick in this room. Just like, <laughs> uh, I mean, 20 years later, he would say, you know, I am but a girl and know not the ways of war. <laughs> right. Even the words he uses, uh, the examples of what they have is not that impressive. He's like, we've got science. We've got technology and resources. Just like you guys do. But we don't go to war. And you're like, but you don't know what any of those are. He's, yeah, he's just, ugh. Not much there. But he's got dreamy blue eyes. Mm-hmm. But 
Now we're in Troy's quarters and they are actually in the bed together. Straight to a shot of an oiled up foot, which as as a fan of not toes, uh, like not that I'm a fan that you shouldn't have toes, but I'm not a fan of toes. They're like tiny fingers. They upset me. They lingered on it too. And I don't think it was them. I think they had stunt hands and stunt feet. Well, I hope so. Spread that cash around. <laughs> I hope they go on the, the convention circuit. I, I was David Duchovny, the hand model in this scene. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Uh, they get their own booth right on. Well, yes. And in this very back and forth, lovey-dovey Troy, uh, I'm going to mount you on camera scene. Mm-hmm. That's where we find out that Ral is part Betazoid. He can sense Ugh. things. He's the only one of his five or four siblings uh, to do so. And that's why he left Earth, because he couldn't handle all those emotions. Fuck you, Ral. It's amazing he couldn't sense that that was the bad thing to bring up. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he wanted to come clean. What I hate even more is that in a couple you know, scenes when we'll get to it, when they're, when they're discussing it, he makes some good points as some assholes do after they've already committed their fucking sexual assaults. He, uh, he, he does, he does something smart here. And by smart, I mean, creepy and gross (laughs) where he, uh, begins to pull her away from her friends and family already. So like he starts Mm -hmm. like talking a little bit of shit about Riker. And then he talks about like you and I, it's really isolating, isn't it? Like, I'm the only other person that can understand who you are. Uh-huh. And therefore, like, it is like quintessential red flag. Thing. Pickup artist shit. Yeah. That's awful. Kate, now it's worse. Now Eric got me doubled and you got me tripled. Because I didn't even think about it, but that's totally. That's totally what he's he doing. Priming her. What is it called? Like, he was. Negging? Oh, my God. Is that God. what that's called? Yes. I don't uh, know. Uh, oh shoot, Jimmy! I know the word you're thinking. Grooming, grooming. grooming. Oh, oh my God, Kate, you're st- absolutely right. And then he plays that hand with Riker later yeah. too, which also that's oh, where it uh, backfires. Oh, all right. Well, back to the Ferengi and uh, Data in the Forge. <laughs> they gotta go through the wormhole. We gotta go back. They leave them there. We'll get to that later. <laughs> it's not that important. There's a lot of subatomic particles. There's lasers and mesons. Whatever the F those they are. Do. It, the one thing is important is um, we see these two guys in Voyager years later in the episode oh. False Prophets uh, because so they good. they they land on a nearby planet that's uh, pre-warp and they totally abuse it <laughs> and Voyager stumbles upon it because they find this wormhole but it's unstable and it's like oh my god. These are the guys from Star Trek. And that's kind of mind blowing. Like, yeah, they did such a good job. A few seasons of uh, I don't know. Was Deep Space Nine in between? I don't know yes. how long. Yeah, Voyager was, was like late 90s. Like, yeah, it was uh, a nice little connection. It was almost a, it had to be about a decade between. So, I mean, it was super, super fan geeky to that. That, and I don't know if it was the two actors, but the two characters yeah. uh, uh, come back. I believe so it was the two actors, yes. It's a pretty, pretty cool connection yeah. in the world. And I thought this episode actually has ideas. Uh, the, the ideas in this episode go on to form the, the subsequent two series, both Deep Space Nine with the stable wormhole and 
Voyager, right. the fact right. of like being lost being in that would that be a cool idea? That must have been something they pitched when they were writing this, right? So like, mm. you know, this is the genesis of that. I think that's pretty interesting too. Yeah. But then we get this scene with uh, Crusher and Troy. They're Finally. not doing yoga. Oh what God. are they doing here? Finally. Oh, well, that is aerobics. That is, it's, well, I mean, they're it's the aerobics outfits, but it's... it's Jazzercise. Jazzercise, sort <laughs> so, of. Like. In the Nemesic files, they, he specifically <laughs> mentions this. They're getting, they're, they're stretching for a gymnastics class. Oh, my God. But you don't bounce when you stretch. Everybody knows that. But the outfits, I mean, the outfits. I, I don't know. It's the material, the color combo that they give them, the style, everything about it is terrible. The resume that Dr. Beverly Crusher has in the real world as a dancer and choreographer. Right. And then you put her in this and have her do that. Like yeah. it's... <laughs> It's so disrespectful. Right, it's exploitive. Like, well, you'll look good in it, right? Right. My favorite is when they're sort of facing each other yes. and kind of stretching each other out, sort of, but not. But it's more just like push and pull. Oh. A little bit. Like, it know. was just on top of everything else. Is like really. And then they're having that conversation. They're having that awful like. I am not a prude, y'all. Like, like you've seen, you know me, you've seen me perform. I have a dirty mouth. Like, I am not, but I got uncomfortable during the scene. Me too. Yes. Oh, I didn't like it. Girl, <laughs> it was who needs rational when your toes curled up? Mm. Your doctor and your therapist. Oh. Wait, your doctor and your therapist. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. <laughs> the HIPAA laws I mean, I being broken like a, right here. Yeah. It was like a 15 year old going through puberty wrote that scene about his fantasy of what he would love to see Dr. Crusher and Deanna Troy do. It was like fan <laughs> fiction. It would mean it was just so And we got no problem with fan fiction. No, just not when it's from, you know, a horny fifteen year old. This particular thing. Right. Well, uh, I mean, it was Hannah Louise Shearer. I was just about to say, this just was written by a woman, right? Yeah. 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 How much mm -hmm. did this change? Please tell me it changed a lot. Please tell me, please tell me that it changed a lot. I bet she didn't specify. Make sure you get a real good look at where the leotard goes up Beverly's butt for the whole <laughs> scene. Right. Make sure that reflection is front and center. Yeah. Mirrors. You have to have yeah. mirrors. For days. Oh, my God. It was like an inception of mirrors. It was. It was a full two inceptions of mirrors. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think we've. I'm I'm exhausted by the scene. I love that they immediately cut from there to Damon Goss trying to pick up chicks at Ten Forward Bar. Oh my god! Every scene's creepy. Every here's a little side note. It's even creepier. This is even creepier. The original uh, concept of the Fringies, written into their character sketch, was they have um, particularly large sexual organs. That quietness was an upset face on my part. So it just adds into this bizarreness of <laughs> the inappropriate sexual nature of this episode. I'm convinced that every comedic thinking Hollywood male, when they hit like 30, 
thinks that they are the one that's going to crack the big dick joke. <laughs> They're the one. No one else has done it yet, but mine's going to be funnier than everybody else's. Just like everybody, when they hit 45, has to write the dad died movie. They don't have anything new to add to it. Like they're not gonna beat fucking uh, what? What's it called? The Tim Burton one. Uh, big uh, fish. Big, big fish. Big fish, right? So they're gonna write it anyway. <laughs> That's what I think every time I hear something like that, Jimmy. They, they had big dicks. Oh, what a brand new fucking thing! Right. Isn't right. it funny? It's it's like the Harlequin. It's uh, Commedia dell'arte. If there's a big dick, right? Speaking of which, the Caldonians pull out. They were manipulated by Ral. Back to LaForge and Data and the wormhole. They actually do go in and strand uh, the uh, Dr. Eridor there. But then there's Troy and Ral having their fight over dinner. They're dressed. It looks it looks as if they had already done their pre-dinner mm-hmm. yeah. stretches together. And then they're eating, which makes this scene that much more uncomfortable a little amuse bouche if you will after smash robes on yeah i like that the prop department brought back those uh fancy forks yes that we saw uh earlier in one of the yes the fancy forks and it was a little like there's one point when uh mccoy gets up the the actor in his robe and it looks like he's wearing like the mexican wrestler type leotards underneath you know, like the giant panty kind of thing <laughs> made me a little uncomfortable because I thought it was—he looked really good in them. Actually, it was very attractive. That should not <laughs> discomfort you, Jimmy. He's an attractive man. So yeah, this is where you were alluding to earlier, Eric. How there's actually some good points that Ralph tries to bring yeah, up when Troy point. talks about. I don't want to talk about them. Okay, they're libertarian points. That's why I was talking about how he's like a Reason.com article. Fuck this guy. He makes like points that sound reasonable and nice but it's all gaslighting i was about to say he you gaslights know. her this entire yeah. time he yeah. turns everything she says back on her even though like quantifiably it's not the same like you can you yeah. can raise issues about the ethical nature of what what troy does but you can't compare what he does to what she does like they're two separate animals that you can question the ethical mm. nature of separately mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that, that they're same fucking thing yeah no you're yeah. right and I got to say, when I was watching it last night, I was like, oh, yeah, he makes good points. But after the points that the both of you have made about what was happening, I can't tolerate it. It's like they're not the same. What's underlying what you were doing is not the same as her motivations for what she does. And that puts you worlds apart. Well, and what I like about it is that he's unaware. Like he, he's been telling him these these things his entire life. And maybe he's convinced himself so that when he gets challenged a little bit, I mean, I think that's why he uh leaves right because he actually is like this is not you think that's more manipulation that's an abuser 101 like i you're right like i think i think that is why they wrote that i think the character Mm. like the authors wrote that but it just falls into the like i'm gonna make you chase after me i'm gonna make you feel like Mm. you're you have to apologize to me Mm. and if i don't improve it's it's your fault because i told you i could improve with you rejected me So now now I'm leaving and when I don't improve, I can blame it on you. You know, it's Jordan Peterson 101. It's it's. Let's talk about the scene with Riker, because I love this scene with Riker. Yes. Yeah. So in 10 forward, a lot of this episode happens in 10 forward. Uh, They're drinking their synthahol and this is Raul and Riker just going at it. 
Yeah, well, yeah, and then if you didn't see it going at it, it makes it sound like they're like really fighting, but it's very civil, right? It's the negotiation Especially from Riker, uh, and that's what makes his retort there at the end just delicious, um, because he's never on edge. Mm-hmm. He's not. It's not personal until Rao makes it personal, and then he recognizes something um, in him. Like, it, like it, it's just uh, he's like, oh, well, then. I have nothing to worry about because you actually aren't smart enough to know how good you got it, dude. I thought it was just a delicious. Maybe I got a smile on my face. Like, yeah. all right, there's, there's my guy. Yeah. That's the Riker. whole time I was, I was afraid that Riker was going to play Ral's game at some point and engage him on the level he wanted him to. And cause he had gave him several chances and Riker opened his mouth several times at times where other writers would have had him, tell him he was going to beat him rather than say, oh, oh, you're way dumber than I thought, which which was really delightful. Yeah. And yeah. also just to me shows uh, the respect that he has for for Deanna, where it was, you know, because it was right. supposed to be this like, well, uh, I peed on her. So now she's mine. Right. Or like, <laughs> I licked on the last cookie. So therefore she's now mine. And And it's like. Riker's not having this as a bit of, you know, like something to be like, like a cheap toy to be pulled upon, uh, you know, or to be fought over. It's like, oh, she's her own very smart, capable, amazing woman. Uh, and if you can't see that, then like you're pretty fucked. And I'm yes. really a lot. I'm in a lot. I'm doing a lot better. I love that he says, I, I haven't seen. I didn't see a weakness in you till now. Right. It's the first basically. time you slipped up. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting um, choice that McCoy made after Riker's line there mm. because he plays it as if he's utterly defeated. Mm. I mean, he I mean, they linger on his face and he's his eyes are darting around. He, he slumps a little bit. I mean, he looks deflated and it's not a bad choice, especially what he does later, because it could have been subterfuge. Maybe it was. He wanted to look defeated as if, you know, he had given up, but he really had some plans already hatched to to do it. Um, interesting choice that uh, I would love to talk to the director, like mm. in the actors, like who, where did this come from and, and, and why did you do it? What it spoke to me as in watching it was that guys like this are very, very interested in what someone like Commander Riker thinks of them. Mm. And that Riker had clearly respected him. And it's like when you fall out of love with someone, it doesn't go from, oh, I loved you. And now, oh, I just can't be with you anymore. Very often, usually it goes from, oh, I'm desperately in love with you to, oh, what the fuck was I thinking? Get away from me. And that indifference is what Riker did to this guy. And that is to, to gentlemen of that, particular personality disorder (laughs) that does feel like the end of their world when someone that they had considered i don't know a rival suddenly looks at them and says oh you're not you're not worth any of that like that that is complete defeat until he can get his mask back on yeah it's that don draper line and and but i don't think of you yeah yeah. So I mean, I love I love it because I think that that is the reaction until they can get that mask back on and be at the negotiating table and have that shit again, which drives him to concoct a pretty complicated and annoying plan. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
but they're at the negotiating table. The Ferengis are doing something crazy. Riker's called away, and that's when Raoul makes his play with the premiere. We cut to what's happening with the Ferengis. There's phasers, blah, blah, blah. There's a confrontation, and uh, McCoy, uh, Raul goes up there and says, I can fix everything. And then that's where Troy spills the beans. I love that she has this moment of comeuppance here. I love the moment where she says, oh, he's lying, because mm-hmm. she never does that on camera or on screen, right? Like, uh, she she waits until they always mute it or they're off but she like calls him out in the moment, which is also a little bit of a fuck, uh, an extra fuck you to him. Who's like, you also hide in the shadows and you don't tell them that, you know, when they're lying. And so she's like, all right, you're lying. <laughs> yeah. And I sensed it. I didn't, it's not from me just guessing. I'm actually telling right. you, I'm using it from my empathic abilities. This, this dude's a fraud. I have to say my next favorite moment of this scene, of this episode is when, he says like, oh, it was tense. And she's like, it wasn't tense for you or Goss. And Goss is like, no, no, it was, I was tense. It was very tense. <laughs> I act good. Exactly. It's just a nice little moment. I really tickled my fancy. Oh. And uh, I want you guys to remember that moment where she says that. Okay. About what Goss does, specifically that. Oh, okay. Because this is a sort of contradiction in the world of, Star Trek coming up this this season. And oh. so in a few episodes, we'll see a very big contradiction in what she's what what Betazoids are able to do mm. uh, specifically Ooh. in regard to Ferengi. Oh, all right. Well, put a pin in that. Foreshadowing. So the deal goes through. Uh, the Chrysalians win the bid. And just in time, Jordy and, and uh, Data come back and say, it's a dry well. It's worthless. There's, It's not stable. And, oh, and by the way, uh, the Ferengi are stuck 80 light years, 80,000 light years away. Riker gets to get, you know, throw it back in his face. He's like, you know, you're done. Sucks to be you. And Ral says, eh, I'll deal with it. It's okay. Yeah, I stand by it. Yeah. Like, I stand by it. I, I took a risk. Well, because um, he could right? also never be wrong. Right. And someone like that's going to come up with the idea of the Phantom Zone pretty quick anyway. Like, just put all the prisoners through there. Call it good. Uh, there's some way to make a profit for a wormhole that doesn't, that you don't know where it ends. Totally. <laughs> but then we get that final scene with Raoul and Troy. It feels like an even greater, I think like this is the biggest fuck you that Troy could have given to him because she doesn't give a crap about him in this scene. And it's so great. Eric already called this out, the the sort of manipulative of uh, I can change, but it's on you. Like, and, and are you going to leave me to be a bad person? Right. Yeah. Uh, and and she just doesn't fall for it. I already have a job as counselor. Like, oh, it's so like it's so smooth. And and, and it is maddening because for him, because that is their biggest kryptonite is when someone doesn't fall for their bullshit anymore. It's telling, too, because and I didn't even realize this until we were talking about it here, about how Riker's move uh, and and even uh, the whole reason why Raoul has been trying to uh, have this relationship with Troy was not really about having a relationship. It was about winning a prize. Like, I'm going to take her away from you, Riker, just like he had that, you know, the arm candy with him when he came in and sent her away because it's like, oh, new prize, new chase. That's what I'm excited about was that uh, was the negotiation of, of, of that. And so that even further says how like, you know, Troy 
from that dinner scene, figured that all out and was able to react in a way that felt like, oh yeah, she got to throw it right back in its face. All right. Final thoughts on the price. Jimmy, I'll throw it to you first. Uh, final thoughts. Uh, lovely scene with Riker. I love that line. Overall, this is a handful of boogers. Um, <laughs> the the way that they deal with this sexual relationship between Troy and Rawl is it does not translate to twenty twenty two. Watcher. Or, or pass, I would say pass. Um, the only thing that makes this episode, I think, worth watching really is that the the brilliance of these lost Ferengi do come back uh, several years later in mm -hmm. the in Voyager. Other than that, uh, and really, I'm gonna say this could have been better if not for the words of Eric and Kate. <laughs> I'm doing the uh, the groomy thing where I'm putting it on you. Uh, um, what they have said about this, I mean, it has destroyed this episode for me because I just feel like it is dirty now because of what they brought attention to me, like what I didn't notice, even though I felt some things. And I have to give this, I mean, I don't know that it's worse than Code of Honor, Maybe it's just as bad. I don't know. I don't want to. It's there with Code of Honor bad. Yeah, it's it's Code Olympics, of Honor yeah. bad. <laughs> so this is a, a zero. Like a zero. it's a zero for me. And I don't even want to try to give it a funny analogy. It's just a zero. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, what do you think? Well, I loved it, and I love. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, yeah, it's it's as Jimmy so eloquently put it, it's a handful of boogers. Like it's it's just awful. Um, I think uh, Scott Thompson and Dan Shore as the Ferengi are fantastic. I think you know ultimately this guy's a villain, and I think the writers knew that everything he did was villainous, and it still is flat because of like that fucking scene with the aerobics and they didn't like, I'm a big believer that every piece of art is a morality play. Like however ridiculous the comedy, however uh, horrific the horror, however entertainment, the entertainment value, all of it has a moral component. We're either talking about the world, the way it should be the world, the way it shouldn't be, or the world, the way it is. And if it's the way it is, we have an opinion about that because we can't help it. So I feel like this was dangerously close to endorsing the world the way it was uh, in, in kind of the bad parts that, that sci-fi is there to make metaphor of and comment upon. I, I thought it kind of knew what it wanted to say, maybe if I'm being generous, but my goodness, it went about saying it in a way that was open to extreme misinterpretation and was probably damaging. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> handful of farts kate what do you got 
Uh, yeah, I, it's, I agree with everyone. And in terms of like watch or, or miss, it's a miss, right? And it's, it is a bummer because there are some like little pockets of, of joy in there and some, and some, like, like Eric said, there's some good Riker shit in there, but it's unfortunate that it has to be sandwiched in on, on on everything with all of the, all of the baggage and bullshit that we, that we talked about. Uh, so I guess I, uh, I, I will give it a rating. I'm, I give it a, a, a negative two cold showers. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I, uh, I will be the one dissenter. I'll say it's a six Ferengi chairs. Uh, Oh, the chair stuff. Oh, the chair chair stuff. I know, right. It is hard. It is hard. I like the sci-fi-ness of this story. You know, it is about, mm-hmm. you know, a resource that just doesn't exist in our world. And so, you know, navigating that sounds really interesting. Uh, the writing, I mean, as Jimmy pointed out, there are some really well-done world-building lines in here that, uh, you know, build upon everything we know about Star Trek. And so I agree that the all the things we've talked about about this character are t- terrible and problematic. But I also like that Troy sees through it, as does Riker. And our heroes really do triumph in the end uh in a way that both sticks it to Ralph for being a big ass jerk and the Ferengi and so that's a win and they do it in a way without sh- you know I guess they do shoot some guns but you know they do it in a way that is is uh you know very Star Trekky, right it's it was a negotiation and we saw that from beginning to end and so I think the writing this episode is still pretty good perhaps what you know the way it was uh, uh, portrayed to us now does make us feel uncomfortable, but you know, sometimes you got to fight through that. So I'll be the one person that says it's worth watching to, to hate watch this character. (laughs) All right. It has been fun talking about it with all of you. You make me laugh. You make me cry. You're going to make me pee because I drank a whole lot of coffee uh, while recording this. So my pants are wet. Yeah, that's nuts. I'm staying up all night watching all the Star Treks. We appreciate you for voyaging with us on this episode of Re-Engage. Next week, we are continuing on our mission with the next episode of the third season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Follow Re-Engage on Instagram and Twitter at ReEngageTNG to get updates when episodes are published. And you can follow our various cultural bridge crew on the social medias. Kit Yeager is at Yeagerlicious. Eric Gratton is at Eric Falls Down. Greg Tito is at Greg Tito on Twitter and at Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Jimmy G is at the Jimmy G on Instagram. Reengage is edited by Greg Tito. Logo artwork by Mojo Jojo 97. Theme music is by Ryan Marth. Thank you for listening. Stand by for Dr. Beverly Crusher to re-engage.